The preaching of God's Word then is found in Ezra 7 and verses 11 through 28. Now, apart from verse 11, verses 12 through 26 are the words of a letter that King Artaxerxes provided to Ezra. So, verse 11 introduces it, 12 through 26 contain it, and then verses 27 and 28 is the response of Ezra to it. Now, we've read the whole chapter inclusive of these verses. Notice, just to focus our thoughts for a moment, a few of the verses, and particularly notice from verse 24 and following. Also, we certify you that touching any of the priests and Levites, singers, porters, nethanims, or ministers of this house of God, it shall not be lawful to impose toll, tribute, or custom upon them. And thou, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God that is in thine hand, set magistrates and judges, which may judge all the people that are beyond the river, all such as know the laws of thy God, and teach ye them that know them not." And whosoever will not do the law of thy God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether it be unto death or to banishment or to confiscation of goods or to imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem." hath extended mercy unto me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered together out of Israel chief men to go up with me. Thus far, God's word, we are delighted to have before us such a godly example of a faithful man, somewhat considered last week, and what a beautiful testimony is given him in verse 10, that Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. He is earlier in the chapter referred to, verse 6, as a ready scribe in the law of Moses. He was a minister of the covenant of grace, albeit in the old covenant form of ceremonies and shadows and other such things, anticipation, but nonetheless a faithful steward and minister of that covenant, which held forth the truth of a Savior to come, and was a studious student whereby he copied the Scriptures, and such copies would have been circulated and passed on and studied by others as well, and personally himself coming under it, as he not only sought the law of the Lord, but did it, and taught in Israel statutes and judgments. There could be few, if any, better commendations of ministers today that they would seek the law of God, do the law of God, and teach the law of God. Well, brethren, what is true of Ezra and the use of Ezra in this glorious work of rebuilding, repairing, and setting in order the things of God's kingdom can be true as well of ministers well-known to us, more closely related to us in history. You think of the names of people like Augustine and Martin Luther and John Calvin and others beyond them, and they stand out as scribes well-trained, 
students of the law of God and teachers of the law of God who themselves came under it. And they were agents and instruments as Ezra for the help and strengthening of the kingdom of God. But what is also true is something that is much overlooked today, and that is that the Lord was pleased in Ezra's day, as well as in those other men's day, to use the godly actions of civil governors to support and protect the advance of God's kingdom. So you think for a moment, what would Martin Luther be without the protector? What would John Calvin be without the city of Geneva? What would these men be if there were not magistrates who stood for the cause of God? What would Ezra be? What would he have accomplished? Was it not the case, were it not the case that God had worked in the king's heart? This is what brings forth, notice verse 27 and 28, this rejoicing. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers. Why? Because he hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart. Ezra knew that it was by the means of the Lord working through Artaxerxes that he had such favor to go forth and serve to the glory of God. Now, he doesn't say, well, you know, this is a bit suspect and questionable that Artaxerxes should finance and support the cause of this reforming work. He doesn't say, you know, I guess we're just the beneficiaries of some overstepping of Artaxerxes. Rather, he attributes it to God. He rejoices and said, it's God who has done this thing. It's God who has worked in the life of Artaxerxes. It's God who has blessed His purpose through the support, protection, and advancement that is given by Artaxerxes. Now, as you'll remember, Artaxerxes is a king. He even takes to himself that title, King of Kings, which means he was, we would call him, a form of an emperor. He was one who oversaw lesser kings. He was the highest magistrate in this empire. And so all other lesser kings were answerable to him. There's not something of a perfect um, comparison in our own day. We don't have a king in our nation. We don't have lesser kings in our nation. You can perhaps see some likeness in a way of thinking about the Supreme Court and lesser courts. And you can see something of a similarity there, that when a ruling is there enacted, lesser courts in many ways are submitted to it. There's something like that, but this, of course, is different. He's the king. He has the power of making laws, of executing laws, of ensuring that they're done, and all others are to submit to him. Now, notice a little bit more fully the content of this letter that Ezra carries. It's Artaxerxes, which he gives to Ezra. In verses 11 and 12 is something of an introduction. And from verse, 14, or verse 13, there's a commission given to Ezra to go with others to Jerusalem. This will come up again and again and again. And notice from verse 14 through 22 is this royal commission by which Ezra is charged not only to inquire as to the state of things, but to use the finances afforded to him out of the government's coffers to support and set in order the things of Christ's kingdom under the old covenant. 
And so royal provision is given to support the work. Civil provision is given to support the work. And you can see elsewhere, not only is financial provision given, but civil protections are given so that there's not to be the hindering of this work and there is not to be the imposing of taxes upon such ministers of the work. And moreover, certain protections given that not only should there be no hindrance to it, but that those who don't submit to it are to be brought under judgment. Whether it is, verse 26, notice, death, capital punishment, banishment, confiscation of goods, or to imprisonment. Now, someone might stand and say, well, this is just Artaxerxes sort of carrying out an equal opportunity method toward all religions. But he's not. Notice how clearly this is. Some stumble at this and they say, well, look, he's just talking about the God of Jerusalem as a God of various gods. But rather, when you see, for instance, in verse 16, their God which is in Jerusalem, and in verse 19, the God of Jerusalem, thy God, and so on, it has to be understood with reference to specificity. This is the God who is to be served. Which God? The God that the Syrians claim? The God that the Egyptians claim? The God that others claim? No, no, no. The God identified with Jerusalem. And then he says elsewhere that this is, verse 21, the God of heaven. What he's doing is he's saying, this is the one true God who is to be served. Who is this one true God of heaven? Well, it's not the God whom they're serving. It's not the God whom the others are serving. It's the God who is making his house rebuilt at Jerusalem. That God is the God of heaven and earth. So think of it in our own sort of multi-religious scene today. You can have Jews and Christians and Muslims all in one room. And if we said something like this, the God of heaven is to be worshipped, everyone in that room would say absolutely that's the case. But so soon as we say the God of heaven, who is the God of the Holy Scriptures, who is eternally Father and Son and Spirit, He is to be worshipped. Well, only the Christians would subscribe to that Whereas the Jews and the Muslims and any other religious group that would be there would say, no. This is the import of this letter. When Darius is using the, or Artaxerxes is using these interchangeably, on one occasion he's specifying as in contrast to all other false gods. And then when he uses the title God of Heaven, he's using it as the transcendent acknowledgement that this God, whose temple is at Jerusalem, whom Ezra is ascribed to, is the God of all else. So this letter is not some you know, multi-religious effort. It is a support of the true and clear religion of the God of Heaven and earth. Notice as well in the passage before us, we don't have time to open up all of the things before us, but you'll notice that Artaxerxes himself doesn't take any of the religious aspect upon himself. So in other words, the king Artaxerxes isn't coming and saying, this is what you're going to teach. You're going to teach what I think. He doesn't come and say, here's the man that I'm going to appoint as the minister. Rather, he supports it. He protecting it, he's surrounding it, but he never enters into the actual religious 
work. And so he acknowledges that Ezra is a scribe of God, and he supports Ezra as that scribe. He acknowledges the laws of God as written in the scriptures of the Old Testament of his time, and he, so he supports those things. He doesn't enter into the religious affairs. And so the scriptures, as they have a place for civil government supporting religion, has no place for the civil government taking upon themselves the exercise of the religious aspect. In other words, a king is not to be the preacher. A president is not to have rules about the uh, observance of the sacraments. Rather, in the scriptures we see them acknowledging the truth, supporting the truth, and in supporting, supporting those who are lawfully called to the ministry to carry out their work. These are foreign words to us in our nation, wherein we have, from the earliest days, it taught to us that it is a, not only constitutional provision, but a right thought that the church and state are to be separated. Now, we don't have time to go into all of the details of the history of that phrase, but we ought to see that what is understood by that today is far different than even the founders of our nations understood it. But if you step back even further, you'll see something that what was being articulated at the founding of our nation had more to do with the philosophy of the Enlightenment than it had anything to do with the teaching of the Scriptures. And so when we think of these things, it's difficult for us because we inhabit a culture that has prioritized certain things which are not grounded in the Word of God. As Christians, we have to learn to think critically of what things are being said to us politically and other such things in order to discern genuinely what the Word of God sets forth. And to emphasize this once more, notice that Ezra blesses God for this provision. He doesn't reprove Artaxerxes and say something like, listen Artaxerxes, it's not your role to do these things. He rather acknowledges the work of Artaxerxes, praises God for it, and is encouraged by it to get himself busy in the work of reformation. Brethren, this is the pattern in every work of reformation ever performed. We don't mean by that every minor work, for instance, in a congregation or in a household or in a life. We mean that rather by those great epochs of reformation. There's no Protestant reformation without the Lord not only raising up godly men to preach like unto Ezra, to teach like unto Ezra, but godly magistrates who supported, defended, financed, and cultivated these things. There's none of it without such provision. And brethren, when we pray for reformation in our day, we ought to be thinking in terms of the Scripture's idea of reformation. What we see is rulers as rulers, kings as kings, are called to support the cause of true religion. Not to enter into the administration of it, but to stand with their support of the same to the glory of God. Now we'll see this is not an isolated teaching, but is rather quite full throughout the Scriptures. But before we go further, think on this first point of the meaning of civil government after which we'll consider the support of civil government, and thirdly then, the honor 
that civil government gives to the church, meaning support and honor. And take into your mind this expression, kings as kings supporting and serving the king of kings. What's the point being made? It's not just Artaxerxes as a private individual who's saying, you know, I'm a wealthy man, and I'll furnish out of my own personal wealth and gain help and support. Of course that's commended elsewhere in Scripture. What you have before you, rather, is Artaxerxes in his official capacity serving the cause of the kingdom of God. It's what Darius did. It's what the king of Nineveh did. And it's what many others have done as well. In other words, the Scriptures aren't only saying, well done, Artaxerxes, of the wealth that you have, of the private influence you have, you've served the cause of God. But rather, well done, Artaxerxes, you've used your royal authority to support the cause of the greater kingdom. So let's consider this firstly by looking at the meaning of civil government. When we speak of civil government we speak of those appointed rulers over a society. In our own day, we have presidents. In our own nation, we have a president. We have governors. We have mayors. In others, they have kings. They have prime ministers and other such things. All of these are servants, as they're called, to society, a body politic. And so a city has its civil government. A state has its civil government. And the nation has its civil government. All of these relate in one way or another to one another as well. But the idea is they have an authority over the outward concerns of the nation, of the state, of the city, or in other places, how they break up the jurisdictions of their own society. Now, we have to realize that there are different forms of civil government. There are elected officials, there are hereditary officials, there are those who are absolute monarchs, there are those who are kings and yet answerable to a constitution, there's the division of powers, the separation of powers, there are all these things that make one form of government a little bit different than another and sometimes radically different from another. But fundamentally, though there are many differences in their form and expression, they have as their concern the welfare of their society. And you see this in Romans chapter 13. Paul exhorts Christians to honor the civil government. Not with an absolute honor, but rather in their domain. What honor they receive as officials. And so in Romans 13.1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Well, what powers are you speaking of? He says, there's no power or authority but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever resisteth, resisteth the power. Resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that receive, resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Notice, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Verse 4, he is, that is the ruler, the Uh, power, the authority, is the minister of God, the servant of God to thee for good. Verse 4 again, He beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister or servant of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. And so it is that these are those who rule and who bear authority. And such are due honor from us. They are 
styled mothers and fathers in various passages uh, with reverence, esteeming them. And Paul says, listen, it's not the fact that the ruler is a Christian that dictates that you are to be subjected to him. It's the fact that he is an appointed ruler. And so it's not just that we're saying, listen, Christian rulers, whatever. What we're saying is every ruler, whether godless or godly, is if they possess that role of authority, is to be a servant to the people beneath them whom they serve. And this authority they have from God. That's not an insignificant point. Whether they acknowledge it or not, they bear authority as given to them by God. Now, the focus upon such civil government, among other things, Paul emphasizes, is the oversight of justice. And so he speaks of even the highest form of that, capital punishment. In verse 4 of Romans 13, he speaks of, If thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. The sword is the instrument, particularly in ancient days, of executing capital crimes. And so it is that Paul says, He is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Fundamentally, civil governments are to be much about the preservation of civil righteousness, outward justice, ensuring that bonds and agreements and commitments are kept well, that justice prevails, that personal property is protected, that laws are enacted which secure uh, justice throughout one's realm. There are other things, of course, the defense of the body that are beneath them, the protection of them, the preservation of them, and these things. But fundamentally, what civil rulers do is they serve the people. They're to be serving in righteousness. They're to be serving in the outward concerns of the state's uh, matters. Now, this can be true of greater magistrates. It can be true of lesser magistrates. In our own day, we have lesser, you think in terms of mayors and councilmen, and we have greater when you think of the president and his cabinet. We have circuit courts. We have the Supreme Court. And so both of them have authority, but one's authority in one sense is more expansive and greater. And through the appellate system, there can be appeals made up ultimately to the Supreme Court, whose word in some sense we can say is final. And yet all are those who bear authority. What is their authority for? It's for the good of society. And so one thing that Scripture reminds us is that civil government is a good thing. We need to be careful in our day when there's the outcry of both wings of craziness, this crying out against government. We ought not to cry out against government, but the abuse of government. We aren't uh, radical libertarians that say, you know what, we don't need any government. We rather acknowledge that civil government is a gift and ordinance of God for the good and well-being of people. We actually see the Apostle Paul taking advantage of civil government. When he's wrongly harassed, he appeals to Caesar. He's invoking a civil right afforded to him. I'm not going to stand for this. I'm going to appeal as a Roman citizen to Caesar to be heard of him. And you have to observe it. And so we see even in the Apostle's labor, 
this acknowledgement of the role and the benefit of civil government. Now what's happened is, of course, historically we've seen the encroachment of the civil government into realms that are not their own. And we've seen this in religious things, where, for instance, if you are aware, you'll be familiar with the idea of Erastianism, which is a form of government where the king actually has authority in the matters of religion, appointing ministers, bishops, and other such, appointing what is to be believed, appointing what is to be uh, obeyed, and so on. And there's abuses there. But brethren, let's be clear on something. The abuse of authority never is an objection to the right use of authority. Otherwise, there would be no marriage, there would be no parents, there would be no business bosses, CEOs, or anything, because every sector of authority has been abused many times by many men and women. The abuse secures an argument against the abuse. It does not secure an argument against the right use of something. And what we see is, though civil government can abuse those things, it's actually inherent that civil government, for the sake of society, would promote morality. Think of this for a moment. Morality is the essence of justice. So we get caught up in case law and precedent and other such things, and yet... So we think about you know, the recent debates over abortion and that go on, of course, and all these things. And there's all of these uh, appeals to this case and that case and another case and precedent and that precedent. But any Christian, frankly, any moral agent who has their wits about them would look at this and say, are you kidding me? We're talking about precedent regarding the murdering of a child. The Christian instinctively knows that abortion is fundamentally flawed and wicked. And so we see on the back, the rear windshield, you know, my body, choice, women's rights, all these kinds of things that go throughout the world. And we look at it and say, these people have lost touch with what? They've lost touch with reality because they're out of touch with morality. There may be civil laws that protect such things, but those civil laws are actually, in the realm of the highest morality, unjust and wicked. And though we live in the world and so on, and we take not vengeance into our own hands, yet we look upon these things of our civil government as deplorable. Now imagine that every Christian would acknowledge this to be true regarding what are known as second table things. And it's when we get to first table things one true God, the way of worship, reverencing His name, Sabbath keeping, that then all of a sudden we say, you know what? Conscience. Right? Everyone has their own right. It's embedded in our Constitution. Let's be clear. We aren't asking the question of what's constitutionally or nationally permissible, protected, or legislated. What we're asking is, what do the Scriptures acknowledge is the role of of civil governments. And what we see is the way that Artaxerxes functions and is honored is that it actually has a role to support true religion. So secondly, the support of civil government. 
The support of civil government is owed by kings, by rulers, as kings, as rulers. Notice, not only do you have it here in Artaxerxes, but if you turn in the Psalms to Psalm 2, how much we delight in singing this psalm and rejoicing that even the kings of the earth who rage against the Lord and His anointed one are reminded of their place. And notice in verse 10 of that psalm, Be wise now therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. There are two things to note here. He doesn't say, Be wise now therefore, O ye who are kings. That could open it up for some diversity of opinion. He's addressing them as kings. He doesn't say, be wise or instructed those of you who are judges, as if he's addressing the person outside of his official capacity. He's addressing them in their capacity as judges. And notice as well, it doesn't say of Israel. It says of the earth. This is a universal call to any who have this kind of civil authority. And what's the call? Serve Jehovah with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Here rulers, as rulers, are called to honor Jehovah and to kiss or honor the Son. Who's the Son? Well, the Son is the King. Notice Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, against His Messiah. If we were speaking, as it were, in New Testament Greek, we would say against His Christos, His Christ. They are raging against the true God and against the true King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Son. And it's this Son whom rulers are to honor and serve and uh, glorify. So this is something that God acknowledges is owed to Himself. Now, it need not actually stumble us all too much because immediately in our own culture we're struck with this and we're saying, wait, wait, wait. You know, why is it that you're saying this when from my youth I'm told that it's part of what's right to give men permission to, so long as they don't hurt other people, so long as they don't violate second table sins and so on, that they should be able to have the freedom of worshiping this God or the freedom of worshiping that God and other such things. Brethren, it's not our purpose to do some sort of civics class or to go through all the constitutional issues. It's our point to declare the Word of God, which is here God calling the kings to worship and serve Him. That's where we have to bring our attention. Those questions can be helpfully studied, but the first thing we have to do, if ever we're going to get to those answers, is to submit ourselves to the teaching teaching of God. Notice, as it's not just to Jehovah in general, but unto the Christ, the King of kings, the King and Head of the church, their service is then to be given to the cause of the church, which is throughout this letter that Ezra carries from Artaxerxes. Now, brethren, this is something that Isaiah is frequent 
in asserting, anticipating New Testament times. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 49, you'll notice this at verse 23. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They, that is the kings and queens, shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. This idea of nursing, of course, has the idea of a mother nursing her child, but also of just the general care provided to a child, both of fathers and mothers. And here, kings and queens, the highest civil office, are said to be those who are called to support, in New Testament times, the gospel church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice again in Isaiah chapter 60, and there at verse 9, Surely the isles, or the islands, shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish first, to bring thy sons from far, their silver and their gold with them, unto the name of the Lord thy God, and to the Holy One of Israel, because he hath glorified thee. And the sons of strangers shall build up thy walls, and their kings shall minister unto thee. For in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favor have I had mercy on thee. Notice verse 11 as well, uh, midway through, that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. Notice verse 16, Thou shalt also suck the milk of the Gentiles, and shalt suck the breast of kings, and thou shalt know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This idea of nursing is being supplied to the support, the nourishment, and the advance of the kingdom of Christ Jesus. The kingdoms of this world are called to be submitted to and supportive of the kingdom of the King of Kings. This is the import of the idea kings as kings, kings with their authority, kings in their civil responsibilities, kings with all of their honor and privilege and influence are to support and serve the king, hear this expression, of kings. He is the king who rules over others. So think of Artaxerxes' expression in this chapter, Ezra chapter 7. He calls himself the king of kings. Now, he's not using that in the supreme way as of our Lord Jesus Christ, but rather, he's identifying something civilly. There are lesser kings in his empire who are to use their authority, their influence, and so on in service to the emperor, Artaxerxes, who is king of kings. What would happen if one of those lesser kings said to Artaxerxes, you know what, I'm a king, and I'm going to care for my realm, and I'm not going to care about your superior claim. Well, you actually have it told to you that whoever it is that would do so is to be punished, whether through death or confiscation of goods or whatever else. Here's the point. Their lesser authority does nothing to overturn his greater authority. And what's true in the civil realm of this empire is true of the ultimate kingdom 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings. All lesser authorities owe their service to be given to Christ Jesus. That's true financially. It's true with protections. It's true with promotions. You have before you in Artaxerxes' letter a model that is giving us principles of how the civil government is to support the cause of Christ's kingdom. This is something that makes us understand fundamental flaws in conservatism today. Conservatism is rightly called when it's trying to conserve the idea of the Constitution and so on. But we ought not to mistake the notion of conservatism as Christian thought. Because conservatism is just a statement that they're conserving something that's been received. And we may be more identified with conservatives and less so with liberals, but let's understand something. Our Constitution denies this biblical principle. Our Constitution, in whatever glories and benefits for which we are grateful the Lord has provided to us, stands opposed to this principle. How can we say it more clearly? If God would grant reformation to our nation, if God would bring such things upon our nation as we pray for, we would witness the overthrow of our Constitution. What do we mean by that? We mean that instead of denying the acknowledgement of the one true God as God, instead of opening, as it were, unto all false religions their practice of religion, there would be something that is closer to what is in the print of the letter of Artaxerxes. There would be the establishing of the one true religion. There would be the acknowledging of the one true God. And doubtlessly, everyone in this room, whether in past years or even today, start to have our world shaken and say, this is too much for me to imagine. But when you step back into the world of Scripture, it's precisely what is being enacted. It's precisely what is comforted or given in comfort to the Christian that the kings of the earth shall bow and be nursing fathers and mothers to the cause of the church. It's that which the Scriptures hold forth. We don't mean by the overthrow of the Constitution that everything in the Constitution is bad, there's much that is good, but brethren, this is the fundamental flaw. And this isn't a little thing, it's not marginal, it's not something that's minimized, it's something that's enormous. Let me ask you this, which is the first and greatest commandment? And you know the answer right away. First and greatest commandment is what? To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Which is the second? Second's like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. In our nation, which is typical of all nations that were founded after the Enlightenment, there's been the cutting off of the first table. Now that's not all the way true because our own nation has heritage of things like laws against profanity, laws against Sabbath breaking. Sabbath breaking has been swept aside, it's lost, it's forgotten in our world. But there's still a semblance of profanity. There's certain words you can't say, or at least you're not supposed to. You'll get fined by, you know, 
various overseeing agencies and so on. So they get clever. You hear the first sound of the word, a bleep, but everyone knows what's being said. You can use God's name in vain, but so long as you bleep out the D word that follows, it's not finable, right? That's how our world is. And yet it's still a little whisper of some fundamental understanding native to the heart of man. That it is a mockery to think that we can maintain justice with men when we cast off righteousness with God. Brethren, here's the thing. Conservatives in our land are guaranteed to do nothing for the advance of Christ's kingdom until they start with the first table of God's law. We don't mean that there can't be some reshaping of things. We rejoice in the abortion issue that Supreme Court has ruled on. We thank God for these things. But this is what the point is. There will be continued bandages put upon festering wounds. There may be slight helps and slight lessening of the pain, but there will be no real reformation until there is an acknowledgement that this nation is answerable to God in its national capacity as the God of both the first and greatest commandment, God of the second, which is likened to it. And when it is that it becomes nursing fathers and nursing mothers unto the church, it is then that we will have witnessed reformation. It's not just me saying this, it's the Scriptures fundamentally. History is the confirmation. There's no Ezra without the Lord raising up Artaxerxes. There's no Luther without the Protector. There's no Calvin without Geneva. There's no Knox without the Lords of the Congregation. None of these men make any advance without the civil government protecting, defending, and advancing the preaching of the Gospel. It's never happened otherwise. We don't mean that there aren't conversions otherwise. We don't mean that there aren't great movements of God's Spirit otherwise. What we mean is no society will ever be reformed otherwise. We start to get our mind a little bit around it and we say, that's dangerous. Because if we say the government has the right to make such laws, well, some of the worst and most tyrannical efforts have been by those who have claimed to serve God. We know this. It doesn't give us any hesitation. The worst and most abominable, the most atrocious things have been preached from pulpits who call upon God as their God and lead myriads of souls to hell. Joseph Smith, false prophet. Do we therefore say, since Joseph Smith was a false prophet, all other prophets are false. Isaiah shouldn't be read because of Joseph Smith. You know, Isaiah is claiming to be a prophet. Joseph Smith was claiming to be a prophet. Therefore, we should shun Isaiah. Some of us in this world know what it is to be abused by others, whether parents or by civil officers. Who among us would say, well, because my dad, my mom, my aunt, my uncle abused me, Therefore, there should be no parental authority, no respect given unto any aunt, uncle, or others with such a... None of us say that. Why? Because we know in those realms that the problem is not the office. The problem is the offender of the office. The problem is the abuser of the privileges. 
And the same is true here. Someone says, yeah, as atrocious though as it is for a father to abuse his son, it's far worse for a king to abuse his whole kingdom. We grant it. We absolutely acknowledge that that's the case. But the problem is not the right use of authority. The problem is the abuse of authority. Which, by the way, righteous laws would enshrine even as Artaxerxes is setting forth in this letter. And so we can set aside the objection of abuse, acknowledging that abuse is real, but also saying that that's no sufficient argument against the Scripture's assertion that kings as kings, commended here in Artaxerxes, commanded by Psalm 2, prophesied in Isaiah 49 and 60, Psalm 72 and elsewhere, that that truth still stands. But we ought to acknowledge this as well, the honor that the civil government affords. The civil government doesn't take to itself the exercise of church government. The civil government doesn't take to itself the administration of the sacraments or the preaching of the gospel. The civil government in its realm is supporting, protecting, and defending so that church governors can exercise their authority in the church. There's an old adage from Latin put into English, which would be said this way, the civil government has to do about the things of religion. It's concerning those things in an outward way, concerning them, whereas church government is in the things of religion. This is something that every Presbyterian in America stumbles at. Realize this, the Westminster Assembly was an assembly called by the civil government. Realize that? The Westminster Confession, the catechisms, all the documents that you and I treasure and delight in, every Presbyterian supposedly subscribes to, is the product of a civil government discharging its duties saying, we need one confession of faith, one form of worship, one form of catechizing, one form of church government in our nation. So they call ministers together to say, get at it. Start working. Were there difficulties? More than you realize. Were there trials? Far more than we can enumerate right now. But it's a model that is biblical. It's precisely, by the way, what Artaxerxes is doing. What does he say? He says, listen, Ezra, verse 25, after the wisdom of thy God that is in thine hand, you set magistrates, judges, which may judge all the people that are beyond the river, all such as know the laws of thy God, and teach ye them that know them not. Artaxerxes doesn't say, I'm going to do it. He doesn't say, I'm going to set up civil governors. He's saying, Ezra, it's your responsibility. I'm calling you to do it. And that's what the civil government is supposed to do regarding matters of religion. They call lawfully ordained, lawfully called men to get at the work of religion while the civil government supports it. It doesn't meddle in. It doesn't usurp. Just as a preacher doesn't say, I'm going to go and make civil laws. The preacher may protest. The preacher may proclaim. John Knox has every right to go to Queen Mary and preach and plead and pray. But he knew, as well as all of us, 
that he had no right to manufacture laws. Likewise, the civil government comes to the church and says, you need to be busy about your work. We'll support you. We'll raise funds. We'll help you along in these ways. But we're not going to do the work of the church. That's not our calling. We are concerned about supporting the work of the church. Doubtlessly, brethren, these things raise many questions. But one thing that we can understand is this. There's never a point in our public lives where we can take our allegiance and remove it from Christ. So in other words, think of it this way in a lesser way. If you take a job and you're a manager and there all of a sudden there's this movement in your job that says, we're going to start praying. say, okay, well that sounds good. But because we're multicultural, multireligious, every manager has to lead a prayer from the Muslims, from the Jews, from the Hindus, and whatever else. You would realize, I can't do that. Now, in our government, hopefully, there'd be the ability to appeal and say, listen, this is being forced on me, it's false, and whatever else. But understand this. If it were permissible, and someone said, if you don't do it, you lose your job, what are you going to do? Are you going to lead a prayer regarding Islam? Absolutely not. You're going to say, it's better to suffer than to sin. That's because there's never an official capacity that permits us to remove our allegiance to the Lord and set it aside. And yet, brethren, understand this. Some reason Christians think, well, governors and presidents and congressmen in their official capacity, they have to keep their own conscience clear and pure, but they're permitted to sort of publicly enact laws that are contrary protect laws that are contrary, and subscribe to laws that are contrary to the law of God. Not just in the second table, but in the first table. There's a fundamental error that script us. We have to come to terms with the fact that all of our function, all of our authority, is to be under and unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is true of all lesser forms of authority is true of the greatest in civil authority as well. Now, the last thing to note by way of application is this. You and I may look at this and say, what's the point? You know, we are so far from ever thinking of such a reformation in America. Well, then close your Bibles and don't believe any of it. Because it's actually this book which demonstrates how quickly the Lord can raise up a godly magistrate and turn the world around. It's this book which again and again discloses and shows to us how quickly a government can come to power that is then supporting the true religion. This book, the Bible, is the very book that gives us encouragement to pray Lord, Thy kingdom come. And by Your kingdom coming, we are not only asking for the spiritual prosperity of the Gospel, we're asking for all supports. We're asking for the raising up of godly magistrates. We're asking for the supply of godly preachers. We're praying for justices and chief justices who will not bow the knee to the false forms of thought that are present in this day. 
but rather we pray that you would raise up those who would turn the tide and own these things so precious to us. When we pray for reformation, we pray that God would do that work that none of us can do. Now, we may say, well, I understand. I even believe it. God may, but He may not. Brethren, I have this to say. If He doesn't, the nation as you know it is doomed. There is no future for the United States of America except God brings about this reformation. Because as we saw, the nation that will not do it will be raised to the ground. Here's the point. We ought to be praying for the Lord to raise up laborers for His field, for the harvest is great. We ought to be praying, God, raise up godly men who would be statesmen, who would submit themselves to the law of God first and seek to overturn not only such patently false laws regarding second table things, but would contend for the reclaiming of first table things. And if you and I think that's too difficult for God to do, well, we catch our air right away. We long for our nation to be a nation which submits to the King of Kings. And brethren, our hope is this, that whether it is our nation or not that would do so, the prophecies of God will come to pass. There will be rulers, kings and queens, and other rulers who will become nursing fathers and nursing mothers to the church. This ought to fill us with hope that whether it's in our lifetime, our children's lifetime, or descendants long down the road, just like the Israelites prayed, O God, that the isles and those that are far off on the sea would come to know You. And they continue to sing that psalm. And now we stand. Understand this. There is a generation to come that will witness nursing fathers and nursing mothers to the church. Here's the question. Will you be, whether great or small, an instrument in the promotion of God's cause? Will you stand and bear the testimony, bear the witness, testify against sin, testify for righteousness? Will you bend the knee and pray that the Lord would raise these things up? Standing against the encroachment of the civil government, but also standing against the neglect of the civil government. Because it's these means which the Lord uses to bring about what Ezra says, Blessed be the Lord God who brings these things to pass to strengthen the hand of His servant to go forth and see that the kingdom of God would prosper. Would you stand with me for prayer?